0: It's that time of the year when podcasts like political theater do their years in review. It's a helpful frame. It makes sense by imposing some order or at least a time constraint in condensing a story. But 2021, zooming out, looking at it from a different angle like that of a future historian, what does that look like? Well, 2021 will probably look a lot like 2020, an extension of something that started but did not finish. 2020 was defined largely by two things, the presidential election and its bitter politics and the COVID-19 pandemic and its deadly wake. The November election of that year and the introduction of vaccines seemed to indicate we were going to move on, but not so fast. The January 6th attack on the Capitol this year by supporters of then President Donald Trump was a breach in an unbroken streak of peaceful transfers of power. So let's begin our year in review at the beginning and listen to Catherine Tully McManus, a former CQ roll call reporter who was inside the Capitol when all hell broke loose. It's Thursday, January 7th, 2021. The first week of a new Congress is usually a relatively sleepy affair, especially during a presidential transition. There's the swearing in of lawmakers, then a typically ceremonial pro forma counting of electoral votes, followed by some perfunctory Senate confirmation hearings so the new president can have some of his cabinet installed on the day he is inaugurated. Not this year, and certainly not this week. Lawmakers were sworn in amid the specter of the COVID-19 pandemic. Then there was the, the dramatic conclusion of two Georgia Senate runoffs that saw Democrats flip both seats along with control of the Senate itself in that chamber and then something we had not seen since, oh, the War of 1812, the takeover of the United States Capitol by violent means. In this case, a mob incited by President Donald Trump who wanted them to disrupt the joint session of Congress that would certify President-elect Joe Biden's win. Catherine Tully McManus, uh, you have been covering the uh, United States Congress for a few years now. Uh, We've been working together for a few years. I think it's safe to say Uh, You've never been in any kind of situation like that. Um, Let's talk a little bit about your day, and let's give our listeners a feel for what it was like that you were experiencing.
2: It moved incredibly quickly. I'll say at the point where Mike Pence had left and we were entering the chamber to be locked inside, um, my understanding, based on... Just people who had come from other parts of the Senate were that like some protesters had gotten in. We did not know the scale, we didn't know anything. Um, Something that struck me was how many senators were in the chamber. They were instructed by a senior member of the Capitol Police. He was shouting for everyone to get in their seats, everyone get in their seats, for any staff to sit down which really illustrated to me, what it did is I immediately thought about impeachment where all senators do have to be seated during those debates. Um, And that was the last time that I spent hours upon hours in the Senate chamber, which was a a possibility at that moment in my mind. Um, It was clear to me that people who were jumping on their phones were either on the phone with family members or staff, I could not specifically hear those conversations, but it was very clear from body language that they were relaying basically their status, that they were safe. And that is what signaled to me is that this must be on the news and this might be bigger than a handful of guys who got in. Um, My mind immediately went to, are they armed? how many of them are there, etc. I would not know the scale until much later. It was only a period of about 20 minutes that we were in the chamber. And at that point, all the doors had been locked and the senators had been yelled at to get away from the doors. At one point, Amy Klobuchar stood up and said sh- that she was getting reports of shots fired. So get away from the doors, mm-hmm. um, which really did create a a really solemn, tense atmosphere. Um, After about 20 minutes, senators were basically told to get out. We, I did not hear the specific instruction. Um, I was honestly, I was taking notes on just what was going on in the room. Um, And suddenly every senator was out of their seats and was making their way towards the doors that were directly under the balcony that I was on. And it was a crush of people um, that I can only compare to like people trying to get on a subway train or trying to get out of a burning building. Um, It was really a crush of people. There are some steps there, and this is an elderly group, let's be clear. Um, And something that I found remarkable was kind of some odd couplings. People who I know do not agree on policy And I don't know to have an established friendship across the aisle. There are many of those, but these were not those pairings who were steadying each other, whether grabbing each other's arms or linking arms to both stay upright as they made their crush towards the door, but also to, it seemed like to steady each other's nerves that they were being evacuated from what we had, been told was one of the absolute safest places to be in the United States Capitol. And to me, that signaled that the threat was much more serious than any of us could have anticipated.
0: Just real quickly, like talk about what it was like to be in the room with those senators and staffers and all these people that you don't normally that you see a lot, but you don't necessarily spend a lot of cheek to jowl time with.
2: I did not know what the destination was. I was literally like following a stream of people. I was shoulder to shoulder with uh, Dick Durbin, uh, Roy Blunt, Amy Klobuchar, Brian Schatz, a long sprinkle between reporters, staffers and others um, moving through hallways, tunnels. We went up a lot of stairs, more than I anticipated. Um, I was <laughs> sweating by the end and some of the older senators were lagging behind. Um, and That moving as a body, as a group in a direction in which we did not necessarily know the destination was stunning to me.
0: It's worth repeating how stunning this all was. A mob tried to block the counting of electoral college votes. And despite the eventual inauguration of Joe Biden as the 46th president, Trump and his supporters have continued to undermine democracy By spreading lies about voter fraud, intimidating anyone who seeks the truth about the attack, and looking for ways to ensure that, regardless who actually wins an election, that they can come out on top, the impact has lingered on Capitol Hill as well. Here is a bit from our conversation with D.C. Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton. Just how long will the United States Capitol look like a militarized zone amid a pandemic, an impeachment trial, an economic crisis? And the fallout over the January 6th armed attack on the Capitol, Congress is trying to figure out how much enhanced security and in what form is necessary to protect lawmakers, staff, and eventually the public, who at some point will be let back onto the complex. For now, though, the fencing, Jersey barricades, concertina wire, and armed National Guard troops are here to stay. How long will that stay be, though? And how much will it cost? We'll start with Congresswoman. Eleanor Holmes Norton, the District of Columbia's delegate to Congress. Eleanor Holmes Norton, thank you for joining us. Talk about a, a really uh, timely uh, and and very important issue about the security around the Capitol in wake of the January six attacks. Um, you are not just the uh, district's delegate to Congress, but you are also a Capitol Hill resident. So you're a neighbor of the of the Capitol. Um, we, we've become accustomed, I, 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 too live on Capitol Hill. We've become accustomed to seeing this big fence since the January six attacks. And, uh, when do you think we're going to see it start to come down or is it coming down?
3: Look, I'll abide the fences for the time being. We're still getting chatter of people who think they can, can invade the Capitol. Uh, actually the Capitol could have been much better protected. But with all of the advance notice from everybody, from the president on down, Capitol Police did not a- assemble the forces, uh, more than a do- dozen federal police that could have been there. But for the moment, we've got to have those fences. I am doing everything within my power to keep the Capitol from being fenced in. This is the people's house. Yes, we knew it needed for the time being, but we certainly shouldn't have that fencing as a monument to June to January the 6th.
0: To try to get a sense of the enormity of what happened in January 6th, we also turn to two political veterans, Jennifer Palmieri and John Heilman. Political theater meets the circus. We're thrilled to be joined by John Heilman and Jennifer Palmieri to the hosts of Showtime's political documentary series. In Polite Company, the circus describes itself as inside the greatest political show on earth. In other promos, it's capturing a big, giant, chaotic, nightmarish stew. <laughs> we're pretty down with that. We like to ask what the F is happening in politics ourselves, and we're trying to pull back the curtain on some of the stunts, antics, and motivations here in Washington. Uh, but in our wildest dreams of how nutty politics can get, did we imagine covering politics in the way we've seen the last few months? John, Jennifer, what do you think? <laughs>
4: Me, um, no, I did not. Not in my, you know, when I, I worked on the Clinton campaign and I imagined a Trump presidency. Um, um, and I did not imagine, um, I imagined that he might get impeached and be removed from office. I did not imagine what I didn't imagine was a situation where hundreds of Republican elected officials would join him in trying to overthrow an election. You know, I I didn't, I didn't imagine that it would, that his sort of approach would permeate the Republican party. And that's what is of, you know, that's like, of of the, of the gravest concern, but did not see this one coming.
5: I would say it's funny, Jen, Jen and I have been, uh, you know, for having various discussions about the apocalyptic nature of politics for a while. And she had a very vivid imagination about what would happen if Donald Trump became president? So she sketched out a lot of nightmare scenarios, like during the Clinton campaign and then in the immediate aftermath. And she was always like, "Democracy died on, on election day in November 2016." And I was always kind of like, "Well, it's bad, but you know, it can't." And, but even with all of her, I was like, "It's bad, but it won't be that bad." And as as florid as her imagination was, she didn't imagine anything this bad. I can attest to that. That's true. She did not sketch her most apocalyptic visions were not as apocalyptic as what's actually happening. And um I, I agree. It's like, you know, there's no, It's, just, it's it tests the limits of one's abilities to, to, to imagine. You could not have conjured a specter of thousands of Trump supporters actually storming and taking the Capitol and people ending up dead.
1: And then there was a sound I will never forget, the sound of pounding on the door like a battering ram, the most haunting sound I ever heard, and I will never forget it.
4: I saw what was happening and I had that, you know this like sick feeling immediately I thought, cause I saw, I saw rioters in the, in the Senate chamber immediately I thought, where's Cory Booker and where's Kamala Harris, right? Like where, you know, that was like, my mind went immediately to black senators being particularly vulnerable and like thinking, is this the day that we're going to lose, you know, that they're, you know, we're going to lose United States senators. They're going to be killed. Presidents come under threat, um, and then you it, it got tor- You know, you felt you felt you felt it get torqued up under Obama from the Tea Party on. You knew about the some of the personal threats. You knew that his security was more than what you know. When I worked for President Clinton, what it was, and then with Hillary, honestly, is where I felt like it started to change. I felt like I really thought and feared that there would be violence before the election, um, and that didn't happen. But uh, it you know I did feel like we were on a bad trajectory.
5: I think you look at that Trump is now gone, but that that still is there. You know <laughs> the thing that gave rise, as I said, to Trump, so he could easily kind of conquer the party and make it worse over the last four years. So I worry that we are entering into a phase uh, of where political violence becomes much more routine in America. And I do think there is a big fight that's now been that's now been uh, outlined for all of us, which is. You know, a fight that's not at all between Democrats and Republicans, but a fight that's between uh, people who believe in 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 our the in democracy and our constitutional republic, and people who are either supporters of or certainly tacitly acquiescent to autocratic tendencies and and some of the stuff that and and political violence on a regular scale. And I think that big fight is a big fight that's going to probably define the rest of my covering it you know, and and having a voice in it and, and having a strong point of view about it, I think it could be the thing that kind of defines my political career, my political journalistic career for the rest of my life. I mean, that could be, that's, a, that's maybe a, that it, we may actually be getting to, you know, Reagan talked about the long twilight struggle, right? Um, or whoever it was whose phrase that was about the twilight, right. long twilight struggle against communism. This is a new long twilight struggle, you know, that the country is going to have to go through. And it's not, I don't think the, the outcome of that is guaranteed either.
0: As if all that wasn't enough, we had another impeachment trial, Trump's second. In the wake of the House impeaching him for his role in stoking the January 6 attack on the Capitol, the Senate acquitted him, although 57 senators, including seven Republicans, did vote to convict him. Meanwhile, yes, the pandemic, COVID, Alpha, Delta, now Omicron, despite widespread availability of vaccines, the virus still continues to define daily life here across the globe, and in Congress. Here again is Catherine Tully McManus and also Jim Saxa, one of our CQ Roll Call staff writers. So Catherine, so Jim, we are one year into this thing uh, and you are reporting about some of the things that we've learned, some of the things that have changed, some of the things that uh, are changing and may go back to the way they are or they were, or things that may stay the same for a while. Uh, let's talk about some of the stuff that that you've learned, uh, Catherine. You had the this very broad uh, canvas that we gave you to talk about, like how congressional operations may change. Let's let's talk about some of the things that have changed that are probably here to stay.
2: An interesting conversation I had this week was with the Modernization Committee's chairman, Derek Kilmer. Um, He has a very unique lens on this because what happened during the pandemic is some of those proposals that the Select Committee on Modernization of Congress had put forth, um, were either implemented or really accelerated during this time. Um, a lot of the recommendations were about things like technology, um, flexible staffing, um, things like that. Um, and he really focused on, first of all, the technology front. Um, there was a realization at the beginning of this pandemic that many offices who are required to have a continuity of operations plan, um, Some offices had not updated those since the 2001 anthrax attacks on Capitol Hill. Um, So things like Zoom were not included in the continuity of operations plans. Uh, Things like everyone having a cell phone.
0: Or a laptop.
2: (laughs) Right, or a laptop. There is hope that um, everyone having buy-in on some level of work from home could open the door for parents to feel more comfortable staying on Capitol Hill or um, give people flexibility to take a three-day weekend, um, but work on the Friday at their destination, that kind of thing, which seems so minor when you're thinking about all that Congress does, but it's huge in terms of maintaining Expertise and longevity for some of these staffers, um, you know, who are key parts of the legislative framework.
5: Will that happen in DC where so much of the work is who you know and maintaining those strong social connections? I don't know. Um, Maybe that's different than the tech world and, you know, the finance world um, and some other places, but it'll be really interesting to see if, you know, There are fewer staffers on on the Hill going forward. I think the Capitol is full of extroverts who are desperate to get back and be talking to people. Um, I think uh, it's a a culture that people really value FaceTime um, um, and Zoom is not cutting it. So as we
0: head into the third year of COVID, We also wanted to reflect back on the virus and what we've learned about it and how things have changed, at least from a public health perspective. So we turn to CQ Roll Call's health editor, Rebecca Adams.
6: We did a lot of the things right before the pandemic in planning. We did not do very well with the execution. We saw in 2006 that we had bipartisan legislation to deal with pandemics, to deal with bioterrorism attacks. That had stemmed from other legislation that had passed earlier, and um, that legislation was reauthorized in 2019, but almost nobody noticed when it was reauthorized. Um, so we had a lot of the tools in place. We had the creation of this agency called BARDA, which uh, later was used to deal with Pfizer and Moderna and other companies that were creating these new products, these vaccines and the pills. Um, the 2006 legislation also created the strategic national stockpile that had everything from, you know, pills, protective equipment, ventilators, but we were very complacent as a nation when all of this hit. Our work lives are going to be different. Um, I think that technology in general is going to be different and I think, um, you know some of the tools that we're using now like the mrna vaccines um those have they've been experimenting on mrna for decades and you know we've had vaccines you know since the 90s but this is really kind of allowed acceptance of that and we're going to continue to see those develop and that makes a big difference in our response from a public health perspective
0: what have been the the biggest differences that you that you've observed rebecca
6: It does make a big difference. And to be honest, it's kind of heartbreaking to see the partisan divide. So I do want to give credit to the Trump administration for the vaccine development. They they did push ahead with um, Operation Warp Speed to get those vaccines developed very quickly and authorized. Um, And I I think a simple thing like a picture of President Trump getting the vaccine that he helped develop could have made a big difference. And I think that it was surprising to me that some things like wearing a mask and, um, you know, and getting the vaccine turned out to be partisan. Um, We still see that Uh, the, the biggest, you know, the Kaiser Family Foundation does some polling on this. And the biggest predictors for unvaccinated people would be, you know, first uh, people without insurance who are, who are concerned about the cost. But then Republicans and white Christian evangelicals, those are the factors that, that are identifying for people who have not gotten vaccinated. And you see the death toll much higher in counties that were won by Trump versus those that were won by Biden. It is stark. I think that we saw things like, you know, the CDC saying, you don't need to wear a mask, then you do need to wear a mask, then you need a double mask. Then suddenly... You don't have to mask again if you're vaccinated. You know, I think um, particularly on that last point, people feel like in the Biden administration that the CDC may have jumped the gun in telling people that wearing a mask inside is is not important. So I, I think that all of those things were challenges. Um, I think that there's plenty of, of credit and blame to go around.
0: We also spoke to Matthew Heinemann director of the Academy Award shortlisted documentary, The First Wave, where he and his team embedded in a New York hospital in those very first days of the pandemic. Everybody's sort of, you know, kind of over COVID, right? But like, as you said, this, the kind of stories that you follow um, from the healthcare workers to some of the people who recovered, uh, to some who didn't make it. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a heavy, it's a heavy story, but there's also a lot of, uh, hope in it too. I mean, like in particular, when, when the way that you follow, um, uh, Ahmed Ellis, uh, you know, for months who was in, you know, uh, in and out of intubation and in the ICU and so forth. Uh, and then Brussels, uh, Jabon, is that, is that how you say her name? Uh, Jabon, Jabon uh, you know, who was a nurse uh, who had just given birth, also, and whose husband was a nurse, was a nurse also. Um, you know, this is it. It shows a resilience, I think, that is an, a, an also like a very um, necessary part of the story. Not to make us feel better about it necessarily, but because it's just actually there. We did. There are survivors. We did. You know, um, amid all this carnage, you know, people did make it and were we're starting to, you know, kind of gain on the virus, even with some of the BS that's going on with misinformation and so forth. A hundred percent. I mean, look, yes, it was terrifying. Yes, it was scary. Yes, we saw many, many, many horribly sad things every single day. But I think the overwhelming feeling amongst me and, you know, the incredible crew that worked on this film was, you know, inspiration that every day we're deeply inspired by the resiliency, the courage, the fortitude, the humanity, the love um, that we witnessed. The film is about many, 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 many different things. But if I was to sort of like boil it down to one thing, it would be how human beings come together in the face of crisis. Crisis does come in all forms, not just with the pandemic. The withdrawal of American forces from Afghanistan Mark the end of the nine eleven era. I spoke to our defense reporter John Donnelly about that. So, John, I mean, we've seen these crazy images of people, you know, like rushing to the airport, and people, like in the earlier days, clinging to, uh, you know, uh, helicopters and air, airplanes and so forth, and and all kinds of like just bad stuff. Does does the does the actual execution of of saying like we got out, you know, over a hundred thousand people, where where almost every single person who wants out is done, like the sort of facts and figures that that Biden cited, does that does that kind of overcome what the images are, which is that you know people are like, whoa, this thing looks messed up.
1: So it's clear that this was a major logistical accomplishment that they pulled off in getting so many people out in such short order. But let's not lose sight of the fact that uh, by all appearances, this was a major debacle. The United States seemed unprepared for what happened there. The White House is sending conflicting signals on whether they expected the, uh, the Afghan government to fall as quickly as it did. My gut tells me that this is the kind of thing a triumph of, of you know of jihadists over a foreign occupying power that will inspire um, insurgents uh, the world over.
0: You know these people well who work in the Pentagon. Um, is there a sense of relief? Are they trying to be business as usual? This is just we're moving on. Uh, I mean, I just can't help but think that they're that they're feeling something different now. That like something has changed. What what's the what kind of what are you kind of hearing from the people uh that you know in that yeah. uh, five sided building yeah
1: well there 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 are a lot of strong emotions right now you know and and you know i i mean sure there's there are a lot of people who are angry about you know how this you know these final days went um and think it should have been done better um there's just an overwhelming sense of sadness though um uh because there's no denying, you know, that this didn't that you know, 20 years ago. Imagine if you had said, you know, after we very quickly knocked the Taliban out of out of control of the country, um, that 20 years from now, that you know, after we after 2,000 plus lives lost, two trillion dollars, and, and well, first of all, that the war would last 20 years, no one would have believed you at that at that point. But then to tell them that in 20 years that after after we lose all of that, the Taliban will come back into power. I mean, imagine being told that by a visitor from the future 20 years ago. Well, that's kind of how American uh, troops, and of course, they don't all feel the same way. People have different points of view. But I think that's like, you know, you can't avoid the fact that this is, you know, an awful outcome.
0: It's not all bad news. There was uh, at least one pretty positive outcome, uh, a real congressional achievement, we turned to our own Jessica Wehrman to get a take on the bipartisan infrastructure bill that President Biden signed. It was very difficult to get this thing passed, even just this year among Democrats. What are some of the obstacles that Mayor Pete, or Secretary Pete, as it were, uh, and his team and the rest of the federal government will have in getting these uh, shovels full of asphalt... <laughs> So to speak.
7: <laughs> <laughs> For him get to get this spa- I'm gonna just keep saying spatula, spatula. just because I don't know. I, I just like the image of it. Anyway. Did you cook
0: eggs this morning? Is no, that why spatula I didn't. is? I don't <laughs> know why this
7: is just it's sort of a weird so sorry, podcast listeners. Anyway, um so this is gonna this is a huge bill, right? This yeah. is five hundred and fifty billion. That's just the new spending part. So mm-hmm. that's in addition to all the old authorized stuff because, you know, you had a surface transportation bill in here, you had water bills. Um, So it's a ton of new spending. And I would put these into two little categories. One is a category that easy stuff to spend, meaning... T- we're taking, for example, we're taking Jason Dick's ba- bank account and just making it a lot bigger. So all of the pots of money are there. They're just bigger. Mm-hmm. And that's actually a pretty easy part because you don't really, I mean, you don't have to pass new rules. You don't have to do any of the legislative rigmarole. Mm-hmm. Um, you just have to spend money and send it out, basically, in this case, to DOTs and say, okay, DOT, spend the money. Now you'll notice— one, State
0: and local DOTs. State and yeah, local yeah, DOTs. Yeah.
7: I, I say state, but the states kind of divvied out, too. Yeah. Uh so that's one part, and then the other part is all the new stuff. Mm-hmm. For example, there's money for broadband. We didn't really have money for broadband before, so that's right. 65 billion. Make sure I don't say million because it's just such these are such big numbers that b, it kind b, of b b yeah, 65 billion dollars for broadband. You, and,
0: and is broadband important these days? A little bit. <laughs> With actually, all the, all the zooming it, we're doing.
7: <laughs> as it turns out, we kind of need the internet at this point, point. Um, and the, and the p- pandemic has really sort of highlighted that. So there's that. There's things like there is money in the bill for sort of making uh, transportation, which is the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, yeah, that's my like, that's.
0: And I believe, I believe Secretary Buttig has discussed this uh, and at the climate change conference uh, in, in Glasgow, which he attended this week. In both the U.S. and U.K. economies, transportation is the single largest sector contributing greenhouse gas emissions. In other words, it can be measured as the biggest part of our challenge. Which obligates us and invites us to be a big part of the solution.
7: Because he's kind of a climate change guy, like this, is, he's making this role of climate change. But that's a new program, so there's going to be rulemaking and stuff for that. Uh, there's rulemaking for an equity program, which is there's a lot of um, in many cities across the United States. There's infrastructure that's built that basically separates black and brown communities from the rest of the community, where. You know, there was a former secretary of transportation named Anthony Fox who talked about how he couldn't order a pizza when he was a kid in his neighborhood because you couldn't get pizza delivered because there was this giant overpass blocking his neighborhood from the. I mean, which seems kind of crazy, but part of this bill would basically undo that or make you know these communities more accessible.
0: So you know the the president is is sort of famous for whispering in President Obama's ear when he was vice president about the signing of the of uh, Obamacare that this is a big effing deal. Mm-hmm. Um and and certainly it was. I mean like the Affordable Care Act changed people's lives and also became a political um sort of cudgel for both sides for since <laughs> since mm-hmm. since two thousand ten. Uh, so this is. A BFD also, right? It is. And the I, BIF, the Bipartisan me, Infrastructure Package. Yeah, a, I haven't
7: checked this out, so you may want to fact check me on this, but someone told me that Biden's granddaughter actually tweeted, hey, Grandpa, this is actually a BFD. <laughs> yeah, so, which is kind of, if that's true, that's awesome. Um, yes, so he, but so now the key thing is he he needs to sort of do a couple things. Um, the midterms are coming up right. really quickly. So he needs to demonstrate some progress in order to show Americans that their lives are changed for the better because of this bill. It's one thing to say, hey, we passed this bill, that's great. But Americans need to have that perception that this is something that has helped them mm-hmm. and improved their lives.
0: Infrastructure was just one pillar of the Democratic agenda, The Build Back Better plan, Joe Biden's plan to radically bolster the nation's social safety net, hung in the balance over the last few months. And Senator Joe Manchin seemed to hold all the cards on its fate. Joe Manchin is is really almost the fulcrum of the United States Senate right now. I mean, he uh, came out in opposition to... Uh, a, a high priority bill from House Democrats and 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 House, and Senate Democrats, a uh, voting uh, overhaul bill, and w- and when he voiced his opposition to it, it basically declared it kind of over. <laughs> um, I mean, very few people have that kind of power. Uh, you you uh, have been a journalist for for years and have also studied uh, the the state and its politics uh, from academia and journalism. Um, let's talk about where he where he comes from and what his you know evolution of him as a politician.
8: So I would have to say that Joe Manchin is about as true blue West Virginian as you could get. He grew up in a town called Farmington, and I think the closest larger place to Farmington is Morgantown. Maybe you could say Fairmont is a city that would be closer to him. But he he is a, a homegrown product. He attended West Virginia University. His grandfather was a, a merchant. His father um, was a merchant and he he studied business administration and he I would say that his he comes by politics as a legacy because both his grandfather and his father were mayors of his hometown people should understand you know why he sort of operates independently now um, I I think he sees the way forward, but he knows where West Virginia came from. And I do not think that his thinking is out of lockstep with a lot of people here, even people who may now identify as Republican. And I I think there's a lot of nuance when you say West Virginia is a red state. I mean, yes, it has trended red over the last 20 years, especially in its presidential politics. But um Joe Manchin is not out of step with a lot of people here.
0: With some of the stances that he's taken politically, um, you know, he he wrote a an op-ed for the uh, Charleston uh, Gazette-Mail uh, recently, in which he stated his opposition to uh, this this bill that would that would change, you know, it would establish minimum standards on voting and and it gets into campaign finance and so forth. Um, that's that's made him. Um, sort of persona non grata with some of his colleagues who, who really, you know, they're, they're not happy about that?
8: This, this legislation that um, Joe Manchin has said he's going to refuse to support this voter rights legislation. Um, I would have to say, and, and I don't speak for him, but if, if I had to guess his thinking about this, I would say that he does really, he does not care what the progressive wing of his party cares about. Those things are not aligned with his long-term personal values. Um, And even though um, people who are on the squad and that are newer members of Congress who sort of get a lot of CNN hits and, um, you know, uh, they're keyboard warriors, they're all over Twitter uh, running it. I, I think that Joe Manchin just doesn't care what they think.
0: Not to get lost, the Supreme Court also showcased its 6-3 conservative split with some very high-profile cases on abortion and gun rights. Those are the kind of stories that we'll keep following in the coming year. That is a lot, though, for one year. You know those signs that started getting popular during the Trump years? What a year this week has been? Well, we've had a lot of those weeks, and now we've had a few of those years in real time. These are the times when we find out what we're all made of. Sometimes it's not pretty, but it is revealing, and it can be, in the words of the filmmaker Matt Heineman, uplifting. On behalf of everyone here at Political Theater, we want to thank you for listening and taking this journey with us. Have a safe and happy holiday season and a happy new year.